You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, welcome to the show, Tuesday, January the 4th. Bright here in TW11, unseasonably warm as well for a January morning as we look ahead this week to the feature race on Saturday, the Grade 1 Tolworth Hurdle, where Constitution Hill will hold all before him for trainer Nicky Henderson, who appeared on this podcast last week. Today we look back a little bit as well to Cheltenham last weekend and the imposing performance in every respect from the gargantuan Hillcrest, who recorded yet another victory for his trainer Henry Daly, who later in this show, in this edition, tells me why this could be the best horse he's ever trained in a long and pretty illustrious career. A man just starting his training career officially, at any rate, is Charlie Johnston, who has joined his record-breaking father, Mark, on the licence and had his first winner at Wolverhampton last night. He tells me how that feels to be officially accredited with his debut training success. And in the Weatherby's Bloodstock segment today, I'll be talking to a man who wears so many hats and almost all of them infuriatingly successfully, Joe Foley of Ballyhane Stud in Ireland. Will Kinsey will be along from Thoroughbid as well, not only to tell you about their latest auction, but in his role as founder of the syndicate who now own Cheltenham Heroin Stormy Ireland and as breeder of Willie Mullins star bumper performer Redemption Day. All that and more. And what a great sport we've got under both codes. Lee Mottishead, senior writer from the Racing Post, joins me today. But Lee, I wanted to pick up first on a point that you made in your column yesterday, which tells us something about the popularity of jumps and flat racing. And that's rather revealed by the latest set of ITV viewing figures. What do they tell us? Well, I think what they tell us, or what, what I believe they tell us, Nick, is that certainly as things stand, there is sustained growing interest in jump racing and there is not that same trend in relation to flat racing we're talking about the with with the british audience here because we're we're talking about itv viewing figures but i what i I looked at some numbers uh, over a relatively short period of time pretty much from september through to the end of the year looking at itv primarily itv main channel audiences if you're, race, if you're representative of, of jump racing or you're involved in jump racing or you're a fan of jump racing, the news is very strong because what they largely show is that from 2019 to 2021, and I think I'm, I'm ignoring 2020 because it was the lockdown year, and in general terms, television audience numbers surged anyway because more people were stuck at home with nothing to do. But from 2019 to 2021, there has been a significant increase in the number of people watching uh, jump racing on ITV. So for days like Cheltenham's November meeting, there was a significant uplift for the Betfair Chase, for the King George. They all enjoyed audience growth uh, over those two years. For flat racing, it's different. So for flat racing this year, it's been, I think it, it wasn't a vintage year on, on the flat. I think anybody would claim it to be. And horses as good as they were, horses like Adiar and, and Palace Pier, they probably haven't grabbed the public attention so much, Basilica even. But the Derby in the the height of summer, that had a significant audience peak drop from 1.74 million to 1.31 million. More recently, uh, Future Champions Day, 
dropped from 768,000 in 2019 to 522,000 in 2021. British Champions Day, I think, is a particularly interesting case in point. That dropped from 703,000 to 476,000. Um, now, I think that is particularly interesting because if you look at, at, at Champions Day, Nick, over the last four years, every year Champions Day has had a smaller audience than future Champions Day for a, a one week earlier. As a television event, future Champions Day, sorry, Champions Day isn't an event. As a comparison, this season's, this year's Welsh National broadcast on ITV4 had a bigger audience than Champions Day on the main channel. And just comparing what we saw over those two weekends, for example, Future Champions Day 522,000 average, Champions Day 476,000 average. You can compare that to a few weeks later, Channel November 635,000 average, Haydock, Betfair Chase, Nascots, uh, Hurdle Card 675,000 average, Labrooks Trophy 662,000 average. Um, so the numbers for jump racing are bigger than flat racing, quite significantly so. But the trend has been for flat racing audiences to fall year on year, jump racing audiences to grow year on year. Um, and the point I was making in, in, in the column was that we've had, we heard talk in, in, in recent weeks about um, negotiations taking place for some sort of comparable series to drive to survive. The, the Netflix program that's done so much to stimulate interest in Formula One, even among people who had no prior, um, no prior knowledge of Formula One, didn't watch Formula One, they now do watch Formula One. I'm arguing in, in, in the piece that these figures, these numbers, to me suggest there is a need to try and somehow stimulate interest in flat racing, and perhaps that's one one vehicle for doing it. But what I, what I don't know, Nick, and what 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 people have been asking since the the, the column appears, why is there such a big difference? Some have said, is it just the weather? Well, I don't think it is the just the weather because these numbers are of a relatively uh, concentrated period, and there is a there's a wider trend. And I I, I supported that the numbers in in the column with evidence from within the racing post, Nick, because some have been saying, well. Uh, you know, you look at things like streaming and online presence, and there's a huge flat racing audience there. But what ITV have found is replicated within the racing post. You know, we find that in terms of our engagement with with our products, the base engagement during the flat season, the core flat season, is always lower than the base engagement during the, the core jump season. But more than that, whereas with the, the jump season, we see... Uh, increases, modest increases from October through to, to February in base engagement. We then get huge spikes in March and April around the Cheltenham Festival and around the Grand National Meeting, Punchestown, etc. We don't get any major spikes during the flat season. So, you know, there are modest rises perhaps during Royal Ascot and the, and the Derby and things like that, but no, none of the spikes that we get during the jump season. Um, so I think it, it is interesting, particularly because jump racing can still get bigger and better. You know, there, with lots of talk about trying to make particularly the racing during January and February more interesting, more competitive. There is room for jump racing to grow even more for flat racing. I, I, and I, I love flat racing. You love the flat racing. I love flat racing. But I think it is clear that there are fewer people who are energised by flat racing, and it would be great if, if that could change and we can get more people to, to share the passion that we do. Yeah, I mean, I've got a couple of theories, Lee, and people talk about, 
you know, flat racing is a more difficult sell because of um, some of the the big commercial ownership conglomerates. Yeah. I think in part that, that, that that's that's an interesting point, and it's certainly taken some of the the diversity and and glamour perhaps away from something like like Derby Day, which of course now has to compete with a lot of other sporting attractions around the same time. But yeah. I, I think that, that the national hunt season is better tailored to people's viewing habits. For a start, you've got all the big days on a Saturday. It's a very clearly delineated series of good Saturdays. And what do they do? They all lead up to something. You know, they are all yeah. leading up to challenge. And whether you love it or you hate it, and whether you hate the overbearing, overarching um, thread of Cheltenham running through the season, it, it, there is no doubt that that as an entity has been the most commercially successful entity in British horse racing, particularly over the last couple of decades, where its sort of commercial um, heft has almost grown exponentially. And I, and I think that that is the biggest driver. It's, I think it's had a positive effect on the, f- the festivals that, that follow it, Aintree and Punchestown, and I think it's had a massively positive effect on the Saturdays that precede it, whether you or I happen to like it or recognise it as the sport that we grew up with. I think that's a really good point, Nick. Um, and I think you can you can draw a, a strange parallel. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Death in Paradise, Nick. I I I love that 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 um, that, that that drama series on BBC One. It's nice, light, easy viewing. But I couldn't just join it in those final 15 minutes when Ralph Little tell us who the murderer was and why. You've got to watch everything that leads up to that denouement um, to properly enjoy and experience the program and i think to an extent the jump season is like that you watch the the uh, the initial exchanges because that way you will enjoy the Cheltenham festival even more so i, I think that the the concern nick re um the argument about um the Cheltenham festival works the whole of the jump season because it, it, it it's, it's it's the end point everything leads towards it is that to an extent that is what the organizers of, of british champions day have sought to achieve as well. It brings together various strands, various threads, various storylines into one big day. And I think in many ways it has worked in that regard. I'm a big fan of, of Champions Day and I wrote as much in a, in a big special report for the Post marking its 10th anniversary before this season's edition. But for whatever reason, it doesn't work in that sense as a television event. Um, you're a TV man, Nick, and I'm sure that you would find, as I would find as a journalist, that if you're trying to promote, for example, the spring classic trials, that's difficult because people have been watching jump racing all winter and they, they've forgotten about all these horses that won one back and made in the new market or a couple of group races um, through, through the summer. That's more difficult. But what would imagine get to the alts? And when you get to the arc, whose audience has also been get to Future Champions Day, it should be easy to sell flat racing because we've been watching these horses for many months. That certainly wasn't the case in 2021. To an extent, it's been a slide that's been going on for for a while now and um i, I think therefore the, the, there are question marks as to, as to why that is and what we can do about it well the popularity of jump racing was exhibited once again at cheltenham on new year's day with a huge crowd of thirty thousand packing the place out and the the noise they were making was quite exceptional one of the best horses they saw was hillcrest who's a massively exciting novice hurdler his trainer is is henry daly who's been lucky enough to handle some very good horses down the years and and this one looks right up there amongst them henry he's absolutely massive huge horse and he's going to get a a pretty big following if he hasn't got one already so how do you feel about about having a horse 
of his uh, caliber and, and popularity in the stable. Uh, it, it, it's just something to really look forward to because it is all about that. With, well, it's all about racing, isn't it? It's, you're always hopefully, hopefully looking forward, but you know he he's a very nice horse who's going about his job and doing it very very nicely. When I first saw him, I was thinking uh, he should have been going in a, a year's time going around Hyde Park with a very nice gentleman on his back from the Blues and Royals. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he looked like. When when did he sort of start showing some talent or what you could identify as talent? Uh, he, he, to be honest, he doesn't ever show a great deal at home. He's not a, as you could imagine, a fantastically flashy workhorse. But he did, it took us a long time to get him going the very first season, just because he was so fat and, and enormous. I mean, he, um, the other day, he, when he walked into the yard, he weighed 693 kilos, which I can, I mean, it is vast for a thoroughbred racehorse. It just is vast. And we've had to sort of strip out all the puppy fat and all that sort of thing, which took a long time. And then towards the end of that season, he did begin to show a bit in the March of, well, I mean, it was the first year of COVID, and I forget where we are now, 2020. Um, but then racing got locked down uh, for that short, for the space of time, and Trevor uh, Hemmings took the view that he'd have the horses home because there wasn't much point in continuing with them for that season. So he, he missed out on having probably a run in a bumper at that stage. It probably, in retrospect, did in the world of good. And he was he was five at that time because Mick Meager had taken the view that to hold him back for a year, to not put him in training for for a further year because he was because he was so big. So he he sort of his his whole thing started a lot later. I mean, he's a horse who's who's bred to be a pretty good horse, um, and has grown to this this enormous size. Um, when you when you see him gallop, if you ignore if you ignore how big he is, and you said you can't get a measuring stick on him, and he's he's bigger than eighteen hands, um, does he does he look like an athlete now? Yes, he does. Uh, he's got. We schooled him a couple of days for New Year's Day. Um, I can't remember the date, the twenty seventh or something. We were schooling with agree. Uh, met quite a small horse, but literally just watching him school was quite interesting. You. Used to, I was there, had some people on the schooling round with me, and I just said to them, just look at him. I said, it's fascinating. The other horse is literally taking two strides to every one of his, which, which must be an enormous advantage. And when I watched the race on New Year's Day, he looked like he was lolloping along in front, doing not doing much. And I note with interest that he, they did a time, I think it was 0.6 of a second, 0.6 of a second slower than the, the rail kill hurdle. And he was carrying theoretically more weight, but it's rather fascinating that he did, certainly didn't look like a fast time race, and yet that's what they achieved. Um, with that in mind, and I know you were always keen to sort of underplay, downplay, not try and expect too much of these horses. Are you simply forced to to go to the festival with a horse of that sort of ability? <laughs> I'm not sure forced is the right word, is it? I think the word is encouraged. Mm. <laughs> I think, I, look, I, I don't really know. I, it, it would, put it this way, it sure wouldn't be a disaster if you didn't go. Um, but equally, you, like all those things, you go, you go if you think you've got a 
reasonable chance. There's, there's no point going to just go and make up the numbers. Um, it's just the most. It's not the place to do that. And with a great big backward horse like him, it wouldn't do him much good either to go run well and finish seventh. I don't see the point in that. Is 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 he the best horse you've trained? Do you think? Um, uh, I've been lucky enough to have a couple of very good hurdlers in Mighty Man and Bayrajan were very good hurdlers. At this stage, he's better than them. Now, whether that continues or not, I don't know. Um, but he, he is better than them at, at, at this at this moment in time, having run three times or whatever. Um, Henry, very exciting. Uh, do you have an immediate next race in mind for him? Henry Daly there talking about Hillcrest. Uh, more recently than that, yesterday in fact, Charlie Johnston accredited with his first official winner as joint trainer with Father Mark, courtesy of Golden Sands, who landed a bit of a un-Johnston-esque touch at Wolverhampton. I've been talking to the delighted winning co-trainer and asked him how it felt. Yeah, it's not often uh, you get a bit of a, a lump in your throat after a winner at Wolverhampton. So, um, yeah, I guess I, I sort of told myself that... Um, it was just going to be business as usual and there wouldn't be much significance to it. But, um, yeah, it was certainly nice to be there yesterday and to get that first one on the board. It's very refreshing to hear you not being too too blasé about it. The the, the sort of significance of it, of it clearly not lost on you. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think everyone knows the, the part I've played and the role I've had in the business for a number of years now. Um, and I guess that's the one thing that, that has changed in that there's... Um, a degree of recognition now for the path that I'm playing, but also, on the other hand, you know, the responsibility that's going to come with that. So, um, you know, it was uh, working towards for a while now and, um, you know, glad to, to get the name on the licence and look to continue to, to push, you know, Johnson Racing forward. And, and your yard is not associated with landing massive gambles, but but this was this was a pretty significant one. Am I, am I guessing that you've had Golden Sands marked out as the likeliest first winner for some time? Uh, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go that far. That this is uh, a long. I'm not, yeah, not going to um, pat ourselves on the back that much to say this was a long orchestrated plan. Um, he was a horse that was disappointing us, um, you know, towards the autumn of last year, and. The plan was to, to geld him and bring him back at the start of this year. And just when I looked ahead at the programme book, you know, this was an obvious race that happened to fall very early in January. And, um, yeah, it certainly wasn't my money that drove him from 16s to, to 9 to 4. But, um, yeah, the, the combination of gelding and a step-up and trip obviously worked well and he, he did it nicely. You've, you've even got that spiel perfect for your first winner. Not my money, not my money, Gov, honest. <laughs> Uh, and what 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 can we look forward to imminently? Are you going to be very busy through the through the winter, or busier than usual, less busy than usual? Uh, I wouldn't say so. Um, I think you know, we've got a small team of horses that missed you know, missed the bulk of last year that are um, that are, are you know catching up lost time. Um, 
as is always the case, we're sort of driven by by prize money at this time of year. So um, the additional valuable fixture at Lingfield that in three weeks' time, um, we've got got three horses aimed towards that, um, and you know, Nayef Road is just starting to to go through the gears, um, planning to go out to, to Saudi and Dubai in, in February and March. So those are probably the, the most important targets in the short term. Charlie Johnston there. Winners in Henry Daly, winners in Charlie Johnston. Very few winners in that court case between Tattersalls and Tom George, even though the judge ruled conclusively in favour of the former Lee Motter's head. And Tom George had his say yesterday. Uh, as you said, this has been discussed on the, on the pod before. Just briefly, it relates to sale of a horse called Lariat, who was uh, sold at the 2019 Tattersalls Horses in Training Sale. Alex Elliott, representing trainer Tom George, uh, signed for the horse for 90,000 guineas. Uh, almost immediately, uh, Tom George raised issues regarding the horse's wind and, and breathing. That led to a court case because Tats refused to take the horse back. Um, the, the, the Mayors and City of London court found pretty much entirely in favour of Tattersalls. Uh, in relation to the the dispute, they uh, the the court argued that the conditions of sale were not onerous. The tax conditions of sale that Tom George had complained about, and they further argued they struck a balance between the interests of vendor and purchaser. Tom George, to the surprise of Tattersalls, based on what they said yesterday, uh, has continued to express his his anger and disappointment at um, this situation. Um, he spoke to the Racing Post yesterday. He said he found the outcome was extremely disappointing. Um, he said that as his no judgment in this action um, was given last month and we've been found liable, naturally this outcome is disappointing. It remains the case that following purchase by me, this horse on most views failed seven vets. Although the judgment has found otherwise, I maintain the Tattersall's terms and conditions are in these respects, both unfair and out of step with the spirit or letter of similar terms in certain sections of the industry. And he argues that the time has come for those T's and C's to be reassessed. One of the particular, I think, uh, issues that, that Tom George is unhappy about is the way in which this horse's wind was tested um, by Tattersalls, a, 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 a method that was supported by by the court, but it basically involved three vets standing on Warren Hill as the horse galloped past, and those vets then determining if they heard the horse make a noise or not. To Tom George and others, including Mick Shannon, have argued that sort of wind test, in the words of Mick Shannon, isn't worth the paper it's written on. Tassels have subsequently, to those comments, again defended their T's and C's. I, th- I think it's a really interesting case, Nick, um, and I think. It raises uh, a number of, of issues. In relation to the, the particular case, you can argue, as Tats have argued, as Jimmy George from Tassels has argued, that, it, that, that Tom George could have had the horse tested before the horse had gone through the ring. So that, that was something that he didn't do, and I'm sure with hindsight he wishes he had done. Tom George argued that the Bloodstock Industry Forum, this body that was created um, as a result of uh, allegations of malpractice in the bloodstock industry, which uh, Justin Felice, the former uh, police officer, um, oversaw lots of racing post input into that process as well. The Bloodstock Industry Forum is an organisation that in theory should um, assess claims of, of wrongdoing or malpractice or, or bad behaviour or, or complaints, I suppose, in the industry. Jimmy George, 
uh, a powerful figure within taxes, also the, the Bloodstock Industry Forum chair, he made the point that this case was never presented to the Bloodstock Industry Forum. But I think in general terms, what it, what it shows to me is that had it been presented to the Industry Forum, it would have seemed a bit odd that um, a significant figure within tax was also chair of the forum. Now, that's not in any way to question Jimmy George's integrity. I wouldn't do that at all. But I think in terms of for the organisation's good, um, I think, and for its transparency and for its effectiveness, it would make sense to have an independent chair of that organisation and more of an independent presence within the body. So although this case has been now wrapped up and it's going to be very costly for Tom George, I think it does raise wider questions and hopefully can produce um, more debate and uh, maybe at the end of that debate improvements might be made. Well entries closed this week for the brand new all-weather sale put together by the online auction house Thoroughbid. So the entries closed this Friday the 7th of January. Thoroughbid founder and I should say uh, co-founder of the syndicate that owns Stormy Island. More of that in a moment. Will Kinsey is with me now. Will, um, first of all, an all-weather sale. Tell me about that. Yeah, morning Nick. Um, yeah, look, it's a, another idea, a great idea from Therabid, um to try and incentivise and, and try and specialise in a specific area. This this one being uh, a sale dedicated to horses that will run on the all-weather between 17th of January and the 28th of April. But obviously, as we all know, prize money is, is, is not great. So the idea is to try and incentivise people to um, buy and trade through through this sale and they will win a share of a 30 grand bonus at the end of it. Um, so the idea is that there'll be a, a point bonus um, for each race. Uh, so it'll be one point for third, four points for second, and 10 points for first. And it's for, for races run between, as I say, the 16th, uh, 17th of January and 28th of April at Chelmsford, Dundalk, Lingfield, Newcastle, Southern, Sutherland, Wolverhampton. And at the end of that period, the horse that has the most points will win 20k. The second horse will win 7.5k. And the third horse, 2.5k. Of which the funds will be split 60% to the owner, 20% to the trainer, and 20% to the stable staff. So the idea is that we're we're putting back into this industry at every level, which is surely what, what it's all about. You can enter the sale, thoroughbid.co.uk forward slash all-weather-challenge. Now, <laughs> for Valentine's Day, you've got something interesting to coincide with that. Yeah, well, we thought we'd better do something for Valentine's Day. Uh, it's never been a favourite day of mine. The postman never really used to uh, deliver too much. But, um, yeah, we thought we'd do a broodmare sale. Um, and so, you know, again, it's something something different. Um, it'll be for, for mares and foal and, and potential broodmares. And hopefully people, you know, get behind it and, um, and support it. Now, it's been a very um, promising week for you on the track. First of all, as, as one of the co-founders of the syndicate that owns uh, Stormy Island, who you bought for not huge money out of uh, Jared Sullivan's dispersal and then sent back to Willie Mullins to, to extraordinary effect. Yeah, it doesn't seem long ago that you, you rang me, Nick, after we, after we bought her uh, online, funnily enough. Um, yeah, we paid 75 grand for her. She... Subsequently, she went back to Willie's. She won a grade two for his first time out. And, you know, she'd been a grade three winner before we bought her. She then, Judy, won a grade one at Punchestown. Um, she's then second on the flat behind a horse that ended up winning a listed race. Uh, and then she was a bit free first run this year at, at, um, at Fairy House, which gave Honeysuckle a lead. And then, obviously, she won the Relkeel Hurdle the other day. You know, another grade two. So, in five runs, she's won th- two grade twos for us and a grade one. And, look... The whole thing's just been a fairy tale. 
I mean, we couldn't see her run in Ireland last year because of the restrictions. But I tell you now, New Year's Day at Cheltenham, 30,000 people there was magic. But for all of us, we were there with our friends, our family, just by coincidence, really. And the atmosphere at Cheltenham was amazing. And to have everybody there, the whole thing was a, was a complete dream. And I think because we'd missed those races last year, it made it more special. Um, and again, I mean, look, we... That is why you do it, for, to make these memories. To you know, that's national hunt racing through and through, and the whole the whole thing's just been uh, an absolute dream. Will Kinsey, there, Thoroughbred founder and uh, co-owner of Stormy Ireland. Well, it is Tuesday, so we go around the bloodstock world with our friends at Weatherby's, their stallion book and their excellent global stallion app, in which, of course, and on which, of course, you will find uh, the stallions listed at Ballyhainstud, which my guest Joe Foley has turned into a seriously important commercial stallion station. But that is one of the many hats he wears, perhaps best known also for being such a prominent figure in the Irish Thoroughbred Breeders Association and also a long-time advisor, racing manager uh, to his friend Steve Parkins, Clipper Logistics, with whom he has had enormous success. But Joe Foley, what I want to know from you, the man who wears so many hats, is where it all began. Ooh, uh, good morning, Nick. Um, it all began with my father having a horse or two in training with uh, Paddy Mullins, Willie's father. And from there, I sort of got the bug following those racing, and he used to cover the mares with one or two National Stallions, and I got the Stallion books in the post and studied them uh, completely, and I, I got involved and interested, and I got the bug, as they say, from then. So that's quite interesting, because a lot of people go from a sort of an interest in racing then to a sort of interest in pedigrees and, and breeding. Your interest was in was in bloodlines and pedigrees right off the bat, was it? You, that's what you fascinated you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was sort of 12, 13, 14, 15 in sort of school, sort of open uh, I was pretty good at school, but I sort of uh, I loved uh, I loved the challenge of pedigrees and the fascination of the bloodstock industry. The Pacemaker magazine used to come out monthly then. There wasn't a lot of other stuff to read at that stage back way back then. Uh, I used to wait for the Pacemaker to arrive into my boarding school every every month, and I used to read it twice or three times. In fact, I was such such a nerd. Well, I, I know from sort of consuming similar sort of stuff when I was a, a similar age, you just devour it, don't you? When you're in your sort of early teens, that's where your your thirst for knowledge is is just so much greater than it is later on down the track. That's right. And I, I remember asking my mother to ask uh, all the uh, sales companies to send their catalogs to me. And she used to dutifully send them on to me then in, in boarding school. And I used to keep them in my, my desk at study. And I used to pretend to be studying a chemistry book or a geography book, but really, in, in, in effect, I had the Goffs catalogue uh, <laughs> snuck under it. And uh, it was just reading all the pedigrees and avidly reading all the pedigrees and just trying to remember all the all the pedigrees. But it sort, it sort of stands to, to today, the sort of the hours I put in sort of looking at pedigrees and being fascinated by them because I still recognise all those pedigrees and I know where current families have sort of come from now because of what I did way back then when I was supposed to be studying chemistry, uh, So effectively, you were training for this job from when you were about 10 years old? No, I wasn't. But I was fascinated by the industry. And, and as I said, I got the bug. Everyone says that. But I really did. And I was just fascinated and immersed in the thing and dreamed of having a, a, a sort of job or a career within the industry. So uh, I'm sort of, as you say, living dream job ever since um could you ever have, in, have envisaged um building up a, a a stallion station was that something that was w w was in your mind from a fairly early stage or not 
not really. It just evolved. You know, circumstances uh, circumstances contrived um, to allow that to happen. So it just happened. You know, there was no grand plan. It, it, it just happened. To be, to be honest with you. And uh, just tell me a little bit about the the, the ethos of, of Ballyhane. Do you do you have in your in your head? what you want it to be, what you want it to look like, what clients you want to attract. What's the sort of, if there was one guiding principle, what would it be? Uh, successful stallions. I like, I'd like to stand successful stallions both for me and for my clients, both in the sales ring, but more particularly on the racetrack. Um, that's what I'm trying to, that's what I'm trying to do. Every time I, every time I'm looking at a stallion prospect, I'm trying to work out, can he be a stallion? More so than can he be a sort of success at a full sale with his first couple of foals or his earrings or whatever. I, you know, initially, initially the thing is to try and make them kind of be a stallion. You know, Danny Man being a particular example, he was such a good racehorse for Con Collins. Uh, I really admired him as a racehorse and I loved his pedigree. I loved his mother, Lady Alexander. She she beat, I had a stallion standing here called General Mona. She was the leading first crop sir. Uh, for us, actually, and General Monash became—he was popular because his half brother was called King of Kings. He was a younger half brother to him, and King of Kings was the superstar two-year-old in Ballydale. Uh, the year General Monash was covering his second crop, I think, and King of Kings went to run in—I think the Anglesey or the Railway Stakes at the Curra. He was something like nine to one on, and he got beaten by a Con Collins filly called Lady Alexander, who who was a very fast filly who subsequently won the Molcom as well. So she bred this colt by Mozart, who was called Dandyman, who was with Con Collins, and I admired him as a racer, so I thought he was a really good horse. And allied with his pedigree and his looks, I thought he had the chance of becoming a good stallion, and uh, so it's proved. So they're the horses that I like to stand here. Horses with pedigrees, horses that uh, were good racehorses that have a chance of being good stallions for, for both for both us here and for our clients. And how long do you think you need to stick with a stallion? Dandy Man now is he's he's, a, he's established. Everybody knows that he has been a successful sire. But in every stallion's career, however good they are, there are ebbs and flows. It it, it comes with the territory. You sort of well, you're the first to evaluate them, and it's important to be objective. Uh, so obviously you're looking at their first foals, you're looking at their yearlings, you're looking at their temperaments, you're also looking at the level of support they're getting. So if they're not getting support from the from the brethren in the bloodstock industry, you're in trouble a little bit. Uh, so you're evaluating his appeal or their appeal at all stages. And obviously, listen, the crunch is when they hit the racetrack. And when you see when you see his first 10 runners and eight of them look useless and uh, one or two of them look okay or the trainers are complaining about to me I know you're in a bit of trouble but when you see when the opposite happens and you see them showing ability and improving from run to run and the trainers liking them and the odd surprise is nice when you get an ordinary mare who's bred a a two-year-old by your stallion and it runs really well or runs second or third in a listed race or whatever you can sort of get a feeling that he's an upgrader at that stage and they're the ones that are that are that are good and i mean from from day one dandy man did that he started breeding uh, producing good good racehorses out of out of pretty ordinary mares and and that's the sign elzam is doing something similar at the moment uh, you talk about Elzam, he's doing great. I'm fascinated by Soldier's Call because it ties in your your business running Stallions and also your your association with your, your longtime friend, uh, Steve Parkin, whose Clipper Logistics goes from strength to strength. This is going to be a really important horse for you, Soldier's Call, potentially, isn't he? 
Yeah, potentially. Uh, he's one of our favourites, obviously, having bought him as a yearling. So he's been around here for ages. He was he was broken in and pre-trained here uh, by Jane's team, my wife. So we like to go way back then, and he's he's back here covering mares now, obviously. So he's a firm favourite of ours. Yeah, he's an important horse for us. Obviously, he's the first he's the first stallion that we've got through through a, sort of an early departure from Clipper Logistics from from buying fillies for Steve initially to sort of populate his his farm uh, in near Harrogate. Uh, we sort of moved to buying a few colts with the. With the uh, with the hope of finding something that might become a stallion at some stage, so we were lucky to get soldiers fall early in that in that uh, uh, juncture, and uh, he was a very able racehorse, very fast racehorse, a great temperament. We like him. We've covered a lot of mares with him. We've supported him very strongly ourselves. He's early in his career. His first crop have just turned yearlings. Uh, we're very happy with the stock we have. So. Um, Sort of the guns are loaded with him, so let's let's see. He's had two very strong books of mares, so we're hopeful with him. And Steve has supported him well, and will continue to support him well, obviously. Yeah, and Steve Parkin is a is a huge enthusiast as well as a massively successful um, businessman. What's he like to work with? Ah, uh, Steve's an enthusiastic man. You summed him up. He's very enthusiastic. He's he's a great supporter of the game. Back from when he was a kid as well, he loved. He, he fell in love with the racing game back when he was a kid in Leeds many years ago as well. So we come from a sort of a similar sort of backgrounds. Um, he's, as you said, very enthusiastic, loves the sport. He's a great loser, which is very important uh, in this game because most of them lose. Um, he's a great winner, but he's a great loser as well. He, uh, but he loves the game, National Hunt, and and flat. His enthusiasm is... is uh, is is 100%. He loves it. We've got a lot, a big string of horses uh, in training this year, our biggest ever. And he just, his, his love for the game just, just keeps growing. Yeah, you've been involved with some great horses together, Beyond Desire and Rosdu Queen and Swedwa was a great favourite of mine and, and many more. And he's had success as well at, at the Irish Champions Weekend of which you were a, a founder. You are, you are totally immersed, Joe, in, in, uh, in racing. Chairman of the Irish EBF and, and president of the Irish Thoroughbred Breeders Association. I mean, I don't honestly know how, how you find time to to to, to fulfil all these roles. Um, do you see it more as a as a sort of life choice than a job? Yeah, it's just it's interesting for me. It's it's a, it is a life choice. Some of those are nominal roles. The president of the of the Thoroughbred Breeders Association. Thank you for mentioning that. But the chairman is the guy that does all the job. The chairman and the management there. President is just a nominal role. So, and you're the chairman of the Irish EBF, Joe. Yeah, I took over that role last autumn from John O'Connor, who was chairman of of that group for ten or eleven years. He did a great job. So the you know the Irish European Breeders Fund, uh, you know, associated with its British counterpart and, and other European counterparts in the EBF, I think do a, a tremendous job. So it was a role I was I was I was happy to to uh, to take once once asked to do so. Um, EBF, they're, they're very powerful sponsors. We're the biggest sponsor in, in Ireland, obviously. We sponsor almost 500 races in Ireland this year, contributing over 2.6 million euro to the to the race fund, to their sponsorship funding and the, the race fund funding. So it's it's very important that uh, the money is spent correctly on behalf of all the stadium people who contribute to the fund. So I'm, I'm happy to do that role. And it allows me a little a little attitude in, in sort of something I'm interested in, which is sort of race planning and, and looking at the, the whole race programme. 
Well, thanks to Joe and to all my guests today. Lee Moss's head is still with me and has a tip for you for today, Lee. I am going to Hereford, Nick. The 250 horse called Jury's Out um, was pulled up on his seasonal reappearance, but there were signs, I think, in that effort that he would come on a fair bit for that run. On some of his form from last season, he doesn't look at all badly handicapped. So I'm hoping that Venetia and Charlie Deutsch can work their uncle with Jury's Out in the 250 at Hereford. Lee, thanks so much. Thank you for listening. That was Tuesday, January the 4th. We'll see you again tomorrow. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Thank you.